I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch two out of three of the leads in this movie. Lady Luck was on my side and this Kentucky gambler played just right. Yeah, I wanted everything I played. I really thought I had it made, but I should have quit and gone on home that night. But when you love the greenback dollars, sorrow's always bound to fall on Reno's dreams fade into need. Hey, Peter. Hey, no pleasantries on the no, movie. So, no Aaron, pleasant- do you want to talk about Maverick? I meant like no pre-show pleasantries. Peter, we can <laughs> welcome people to our podcast. They don't know the time crunch we're under. They don't understand what we're doing. We don't need to fill them in on all of our uh, backstage shenanigans. What do we do here? What do we do here? We, don't, we Love to Watch is a themed movie podcast. It's a theme movie a, podcast. We do a theme of the month, and we tackle four or five movies under that theme, and we compare and contrast them. We try and get some theme, some movies from... Uh, you know, all the same series sometimes, uh, or sometimes the theme is is broader. Sometimes it's all of the Benji movies, and sometimes <laughs> it's something else. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all about the Benjis, man. Oof. <laughs> Woof. Woof. Just breathe, Peter. Even though this is an expedited recording for us, let's not show our hands so clearly and obviously. Okay, just breathe. Ready? Let's, let's do some breathing exercises. No. <laughs> Did, who taught you to do that in a stressful situation? Uh, oh, it was a Lamaze class. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, you want to go like... You know what's funny about this breathing joke I'm realizing? Although I should exhale. Uh, we do our best to cut out breaths in the noise silencer. So, <laughs> uh, not a great bit. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It's, a yeah. ter- it's literally a bit that's targeted for removal by us. It's a bit just for the audacity filters. It is. Oh, do you guys like that? Filters, we know that you work hard every day. You take in some of that breathing. Uh, yeah, so you're right, though, Peter. It is sometimes a movie series month. This time it's a different theme where we're tackling uh, our we're tackling ourselves. We're tackling our own nostalgia. And we're doing a little movie called Maverick. Yeah, so Aaron, this is uh, my pick. Nostalgia Audit Month. This is, I believe, the second time we've done this, right? Yeah, looking back over all the records, uh, I mean, none of these were notarized, so, you know, really not not being 100% on any of this, but it looks like it's it's probably the second time we've done it. Yeah, it's tax season. The first time we did it was also in tax season. First, uh, first time we did it was in November. Was it? <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. It was it. actually. We actually released an episode late because uh, no, I didn't want to edit because Donald Trump was elected, and I didn't want to think about anything besides sadness. <laughs> um, so that's why we moved it to the spring, so that no terrible elections could ever ruin our fond look back on things of the past. Yes, and uh, so this week's uh, this week's movie is Maverick. So Aaron, you brought this movie. I brought this one. Well, actually, uh, so the reason I did uh, I did pick this one is that uh, Peter is uh, very fond of the Lethal Weapon movies. And calls himself a big Richard Donner fan, which then he likes to say there's not that many of those, even though I think there's a few few of them. He's, he's directed a lot of very popular movies and Timeline. and <laughs> But he had somehow never seen Maverick, which I would call along with uh, the Lethal Weapon movies and Superman uh, and like maybe even like Conspiracy Theory, uh, like 
one of his best movies, one of his most enjoyable movies. And I saw this as a kid. Uh, it was the first Western that I ever liked because Western to me was, you know, normal nine, ten year old. It seems like an old stodgy dad genre. And I didn't even I remember my dad took me to this movie because he was a big fan of the television show. I didn't even want to go see it in theaters because it was I mean, I was excited to go see a movie because you're always excited at that age. But I was like, ah, oh, fuck. It's going to be a Western, whatever. At least I don't have to do a chore or learn about Jesus or whatever else we'd be doing uh, during <laughs> that time. So <laughs> it took me it took me seeing I was the same way. It took me seeing the Dollars trilogy when I was about 13, 14, somewhere in there. And then yeah. I was finally like, oh, shit, West- Westerns can be amazing. But for years, I was mostly watching like late period Westerns, not like classic ones. So, yeah. Yeah, I was the same way. And I, I mean, this movie really didn't jog me out of that. It wasn't probably until I saw Unforgiven in high school and then eventually got to the Dollars trilogy that I really uh, – the genre kind of opened up for me as, um, you know, just just like any other genre, some good ones, some bad ones, uh, but but a lot of good ones that I fall in love with. But this – so this kind of was the exception. This is probably – uh, if I was 10, I would have told you, oh, have you seen The Good Western? And I would have been referring uh, to Maverick. And since Peter hadn't seen it, um, I thought I thought it'd be a good one to to do uh, for for a nostalgia audit. Because sometimes, while it's fun for both of us to be able to revisit movies that we both liked, sometimes it is fun to uh, show our co-host uh, a movie that meant a lot to us as a kid, but they've never had the chance to see to kind of see it through new new eyes or uh, find out that the movie that you've liked all these years actually sucks. And that's also a fun experience. So this obviously, as we did it, I'm I'm almost qu- quietly regretting the fact that we've done two Mel Gibson movies back to back. I don't want to get in too much to the Mel Gibson aspect. We can talk about more in the episode. So what I will say, especially also listen to our Lethal Weapon episode. Yeah, we li- did a lot of that. So a lot of what I said there is going to hold true, although I do have a couple things to bring to this. But if you want to kind of hear us talk about and. Uh, what it comes to enjoying Mel Gibson movies that were made before his uh, re- revelation as a complete uh, monster, which he's been a character he's been playing uh, year in, year out since 2005. Uh, I definitely go and listen to our Lethal Weapon episode because we we got into it a lot there. Um, I do have some new thoughts because one of the one of the things that I said about Lethal Weapon uh, is that. You almost didn't even need to factor in the the Mel Gibson stuff because he's he's supposed to be this broken character, and ultimately Danny Glover is the is the protagonist of the first Lethal Weapon movie, even though that doesn't hold true for uh, subsequent movies. So uh, this this we have to take a little more look at because it's not only Mel Gibson as very clearly the lead and someone that you're supposed to root for, but also supposed to be uh, charming and a love interest and stuff like that, which obviously takes on a different connotation uh, now than it did when he really was like, you know, People Magazine's number one hunk. Uh, so, so anyways, I don't, I don't think we need to talk about uh, the, the prep for this. Um, let's get right into it and we'll hear your thoughts. Peter, on the other side of the music break. Do you want to start talking about 1994's Maverick? I'd love to talk about Maverick. You gotta learn to play it right. You got to know when to hold up. Know when to fold up. Know when to walk away. And know when to run. You never count your money. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough for counting. 
when the dealing's done. So we're back. Welcome back. Uh, Peter on the break brought up a very good point because we did not do a segment. And there's something that we want to make clear to all of our audience members uh, listening right now. If because this episode and the Ghostbusters 2 episode are not going to have opening segments, if we hear feedback from you that says, wow, it was great just getting into the movie. I'm glad you guys didn't banter and have fun uh, before talking about the movie I came here from. I'm going to tell you right now, that feedback is going to be met with uh, tears. It's going to hurt our feelings. Jeers. Jeer. Oh, tears and jeers and fears. Mm-hmm. It's going to be met with a lot of fears. Um, I mean everything with some level of fear. Yeah. I mean, you, whoosh, it's 2018, Peter. You should be fucking scared. And you live in California. Like, yeah. if, if good for you getting up to start the day, let alone record these podcasts. <laughs> you should be allowed to do your segments that you wanted to without people giving feedback based on this episode and the next one that there was no opening segments. It's bullshit. Yeah, I'm glad that, you know, you addressed the elephant in the room, which is that people might be having fun that we just talk about the movie right away. I'm glad that we're going to spend another 10 minutes here not talking about the movie before we get to the movie. Look, I want you to, if you're listening... You can't look me in the eyes, but I want you to put your ear right up to the speaker. I got a message for you. If you fucking tell us you don't like the segments when we come back, the segments are going to be twice as long. <laughs> like I, sw- I swear to God, we'll do two to five segments per app. The main body of the episode will be canceled due to lack of hustle. Yeah. You know, at the end, when we like do plugs, that, that section, that's going to be now episode talk. Everything else going to be segments. <laughs> Well, anyways, we saw the movie Maverick, and, uh... Uh, Yeah, so, uh, Peter, you are alternate taglines for Maverick. I'll con you, and you'll con me, and we'll con each other, and then the movie just ends. Yeah, a lot of cons. You you could say that this movie should have maybe been called Edward Burns Confidence. (laughs) Be very confusing, Uh, Uh, but, you know, I think the title, besides the Edward Burns part, applies. Yeah. Uh, find out if Mel Gibson is really a murderer. Yeah, that's important. <laughs> it takes like 30 minutes for the movie to establish whether or not he's actually good at killing people. Yeah, he has guilt. He's a human. You're like, is this movie subversive or not? I don't know if it's subversive, but it does have one like very on point woke depiction in this movie. Um, oh, yeah. Which we'll talk about later. So anyways, yeah. So 90 second recap or God damn it. Peter, I don't know how long rebrands take, but I imagine that if you worked at like coca-cola in the 80s you were still walking around like going okay we got to sell more coke i mean new coke oh new coke oh i'm gonna get fired uh so quick recap uh, a guy named brett maverick uh he's getting hung on a tree by uh dr octavius from spider-man 2 and a little guy by the name of alfred molina and then it cuts away from that very quickly and now here, here's, here he is. He's Brett Maverick. He's a poker player. And he goes and plays poker and meets Jodie Foster, who is a uh, con woman and a poker player. And Alfred Molina, who is a also a con man and a poker player. There's either con men slash poker players or people pretending to be other people that are actually con men and poker players. So they're all going to this riverboat uh, casino tournament, big buy-in. Maverick's trying to get his last $3,000 for a $25,000 buy-in. He kind of sets up at this poker game that he is a few things. One, he is um, very, very good at poker. Two, 
he kind of always has uh, a trick up his sleeve. There's part in the poker game where he's forced to show how fast he is at quick drawing, uh, kind of scares everyone who's about to shoot him. And he's a very good, very good, fast draw, uh, even even quicker than the gunman that's at the table. And then when that when he gets into another brawl at the poker uh, game, he goes and beats up uh, five men outside that you you learn were hired men in case he was about to get into a brawl in the poker game. So he's he's very good at a lot of things. And then he usually has, uh, like, his ace has an ace up its sleeve, if that makes sense. He always is, like, eight points ahead. I don't know. Two points? Mm-hmm. Three points? How many points do you think would be f- a fair assessment to say that he is ahead of everybody? Let's say let's say he's playing 3D chess. He's thinking in multiple dimensions. He can somehow uh, see someone and instantly anticipate the way they're going to act. It's very much a... Um, movie con man where he somehow can predict the future and everybody else can predict the future except for what the other con men are going to do because they're constantly like subverting each other. Peter, do you think it'd be fair to say instead of 3D chess, I'm going to throw some out here, that he's playing 3D poker? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, he's playing playing poker. Okay. And poker is a pretty good metaphor for what he's doing in the movie, essentially. Like, he's he's figuring out what people's tells are. He's working around them to, you know, do some trickery. But he's not really, like, a cheater. Well, he's not a cheater. Other people are cheaters. He is very much not. But everyone assumes that he cheats because... And it's not so much that he picks up, like, a tell. He picks up all their different tells, which mean all these different things. So he's very good at reading people, and he also covers... He covers his bet. He covers the spread by having other things there. So, so, and uh, they meet a lawman uh, who is uh, known for how good he is at being a lawman, uh, played by James Garner, the original uh, Maverick on the television show. Which ran for like five seasons. Something you, you knew off the top of your head, not something you looked up, right, Peter? <laughs> yep. Um, Everyone loves Maverick. um, Which you think is just a funny, like, oh, we'll cast him in in this other role because he's too old to play uh, Maverick. But they have a funny twist at the end of the movie that directly comments on the fact that he is essentially playing uh, the same character that he did on the the TV show and that this movie is kind of a sequel. So we can fast forward a lot of – it's kind of episodic in the best way where Maverick is trying to get this last $3,000 and that goes to help some people who – stole horses and then eventually um he goes and uh meets his uh native american friend played by graham green who he also owes him money and he ends up uh pretending to get shot by a russian who's visiting uh in order because he wants the russian who's visiting wants to hunt humans we're going to talk way more about that segment but anyways they get they all get to the riverboat uh and that's the last half hour of this movie is kind of a twist and con on top of twist and con maverick wins the um the poker game and of, of course one of those cinematic crazy hands where it's four of a kind straight flush royal flush uh then james gardner takes the money and he he goes off you found out find out that James Gardner has been working with with the head of the riverboat the guy that was throwing this whole thing played by James Coburn and then James Coburn tries to kill James Gardner Maverick follows in there shows up and basically says here's a gun you guys can decide to shoot each other you win takes the money then James Gardner shows up where Maverick is taking a bath you find out that they're actually father and son um, and again because they didn't want to review 
reveal their cards, never told anyone throughout the course of the movie. Then Jodie Foster. the Maverick Cinematic Universe. Yeah. And then Jodie Foster came, comes back and steals what she thinks is all of the money, but they still have half of it. And they say it's going to be a lot of fun getting the other half back from her. I kind of gave Jodie Foster a short shrift in it, but she is a love interest where they keep, you know, they, they're they on equal playing field and they keep going tit for tat of screwing each other over, but also kind of have feelings for each other. Uh, and that goes on throughout the course of the movie. So it's a very plotty movie. And again, that last half hour is just just one thing after the other, uh, which I love. So I can start quick. I kind of already said why I liked this movie. This idea of twist on top of twist. Like, I wasn't watching David Mamet films at the time. So this felt very new to me and that it just kept piling on one thing after uh, another. Plus, it was very funny. It's one of those weird PG movies in 1994 that it's very weird that it's rated PG. There's a lot of like dick jokes and sex and swearing. And I can't imagine any child would have any fun with this movie because it is like entirely about like head games people play with each other. Kind of, but it's, you know, there's a lot of gunfights and there is a lot of like slapstick and there's, there's some clearly funny stuff. So, I mean, I was, I would have been, I guess, 11 when I saw this, but yeah, I imagine a five-year-old wouldn't, wouldn't enjoy it, but I, I really liked it. Uh, I was a little concerned coming back to it, though, um, for the reason I'm concerned about coming back to any Mel Gibson movie. But this one seemed particularly concerning because he is, as I mentioned, a romantic lead. He's supposed to be charming. And while his current his kind of revelation as this horrible person didn't affect me when I watched Lethal Weapon, I will say, Peter, it affected me watching this one a little bit because – his version of charming is so aggressive and so misogynistic that it it's impossible to not see like the monster lurking underneath Mel Gibson. Like, sure, the the, the like casual misogyny would have been shitty regardless of who it is, but he's like He's so he's playing this kind of like frustrated guy at 11 where it's not like funny. I'm yelling and I'm frustrated like Jerry Seinfeld when he gets frustrated. But it's more like I hate you because you're a woman and I'm frustrated with that. So um, he doesn't like that. She's a woman who can keep up. Yeah, it takes most of the movie until he's finally charmed by her. And and you almost feel like it's horniness overriding anything because um and there's a line where uh, he's making fun of her. He's being rude to her. And uh, James Garner says, Zane Cooper, at this point in the movie, says, a woman's suffering isn't a funny thing. Yeah. And then Mel Gibson goes, there are exceptions, like giggling and trying to be charming. And you're like, uh, uh, uh. Yeah. They, I mean, they lay it on pretty thick, like that James Coburn is even like, this is, you're going too far. And he just keeps kind of making these women suck jokes. And again, that that wouldn't have aged well coming out of anyone's mouth. But it's not just the jokes. It's the way they're delivered with this, like, intensity under the, the seams where he does look like he's about to take, like, physical action at any moment. He's so angry. And that may be me mapping what I know about Mel Gibson, who did uh, on tape scream at his uh, wife and mother of their kid uh, and then uh, beat her. So not to immediately take this episode uh, down, but 
it's 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 really hard. It's really hard not to find find those moments in this movie not only not charming anymore but like aggressively uncomfortable. So there's still a lot to like in this movie, but I've I've always said I said on the Lethal Weapon episode that a lot of these Mel Gibson movies that I haven't gone back to uh, just because I I haven't and I've been watching other movies. I could see Mad Max, The Road Warrior, that kind of stuff still playing pretty well or Lethal Weapon where he's kind of unhinged. But when he plays kind of the funny cad, I was wondering if I would – I not, not a, out of some sort of like I can't watch this now because Mel Gibson's in it. But I just wondered if on a human level, if my, my body and my mind would not be able to click off and feel some revulsion – at what was going on and it turns out uh i anticipated my behavior very correctly because i really don't like any of those parts of this movie anymore and it did it did in some ways um some drop drop in my esteem uh after this viewing that this there's still a lot to recommend there's still a lot i like but i probably won't be revisiting this one anytime soon yeah, so this is my first time watching it, so I could only see it from really that perspective, the modern perspective, where we know what we know about Mel Gibson, which, uh, if it's a movie about somebody playing a monster or playing a damaged person, like, you can kind of compartmentalize some of that real-world stuff, maybe. Like, maybe you're able to, if he's playing, like, a, a villain in... Uh, isn't he in Expendables 3, the villain? Sure. Um, one of them. One I've, of never, them. I've never seen any of those. I think you could compartmentalize like his abuser tendencies and be like, well, at least he's playing an asshole. The movie is not making the ask of us to find him to be this charmish, charming rogue. Or like the Mad Max movies where he's just a cipher. Yes. But this feels directly pulled out of Mel Gibson's real life persona. Um, particularly what Mel Gibson is known for being like a prankster in real life and like, uh, you know, like a party guy until he's not because he's an alcoholic, like a party guy and like a trickster and, you know, he he loves his women. So like, I feel like this movie was cast because Richard Donner and anybody else that was on the producing end was like, okay, this is kind of who he is in real life. Whereas like Riggs, I can, I can sort of like, yeah. I can compartmentalize some of the stuff and the way he acts, particularly Riggs is like so sweet to animals and women, like everybody that is like, um, everybody that is like, uh, you know, he could get away with being shitty to in the Lethal Weapon movies, he's mostly friendly to, except for Lethal Weapon 4, which is like inexplicably has a bunch of racism in it. Yeah, inexplicably. Very explicitly now. <laughs> it, well, it, it, it's inexplicable because half the movie is like, it's anti-immigration um, cops. Like, uh, Murtaugh hides uh, a family of Chinese yeah. citizens in his uh, in his house because he knows if he turns them in, they're just going to get sent back home, maybe tortured, maybe treated really poorly. And he's like, that, that's the movie of Murtaugh being like, this is my moral choice above the law. And this is that's like a really cool way to like make the the series like uh-huh. expand on him. He's sort of internalizing Riggs's like I don't play by the bookism. Whereas, and then the movie has racism later in it. And then you see a little bit of in Lethal Weapon Four. You see a little bit of what probably Mel Gibson is like in real life because Mel Gibson famously said a bunch of racist shit before. Was famously racist, or at least was racist at the time we heard a bunch of awful racist shit coming yeah. out of his mouth. Well, there's a little bit of Lethal Weapon too. There's those we. I think it ended up getting cut from the episode just because we talked a lot about Mel Gibson. But there's those two 
like super out of nowhere aggressively homophobic jokes which feels yes. so out of place it almost feels like mel gibson was improving and and he just couldn't do it without saying this shitty stuff uh, in relation to what was going on in the movie and you feel that here like you feel like his flirting with Jodie Foster, which is aggressive and misogynistic, you feel like that was probably the charming cad that Mel Gibson uh, always thought of thought of himself as in real life. And yeah, it it hits it to underline it would have hit bad or it would have hit poorly regardless of who did it it's that terrible 90s thing of like oh you know it's a funny joke about a capable woman in a movie like jodie foster very much is in this movie let's laugh at the fact that women can't be capable so it has that and that's unfortunate and that would be bad if if james gardner was frozen in time and came back to play brett maverick uh in this movie um it's worse coming from uh, Mel Gibson because of his tone and the fact that he does seem like he was really angry at women. Like it's not a it's not a funny line. He doesn't deliver them as like, <laughs> oh, women always playing cards when they should be washing my shirt. It is like, a, you should be out there washing shirts, and it's like Jesus Christ. Okay, like, because because that's the thing that people forget about Lethal Weapon. Uh, is because Lift the Weapon is a white cop, black cop movie, but Mel Gibson never calls Murtaugh the N-word or anything. Like, they, they like, they disagree in their methods, their backgrounds, who they are, but they find a brotherhood in, you know, the job and, like, in their differences and how they complement one another. Um, whereas, so, like, uh, there's, like, a, a way that the, the two characters sing together. And this, they're going head-to-head, and that's the dynamic of the movie. So, like, He's not afraid to say misogynistic stuff, even if, like, the only goal is to throw her off her game. Because at this time, the buddy cop movies that we were used to were more, like, two people who fucking hate each other and will throw any homophobic, misogynistic, racist, bigoted shit at each other just to throw each other off. And the audience is supposed to laugh because it's like, ah, you know how guys are. They just they just talk to each other as, like, like shitheads, and she's just supposed to be you know, one of the guys because she's competing on the level of one of the guys. But it doesn't, it is, it is like a weird thing when they just decide to be romantic because I'm like, you guys have been cruel to each other the whole movie in ways that like I wouldn't be able to forgive. Yeah. Yeah. They're just, it's, it really is just a horniness. Um, if they don't get together yeah, in the end. It's horny. Yeah. The, they, they just are both, there's that scene of them like leaning over each other and they're like on this next poker break we are going to fuck really hard and then that's going to be that uh there is no attempt uh, at either ending of their uh at either point where they split up from each other at the end because they do it twice of them like let's stay in touch and i love you it really is just a i want to fuck you uh right now which is you know was probably surprising for my dad in the theater when he took us to it uh, because it is it just is, it is, it's, yeah. it's very it's very aggressively horny for a PG rated movie it's somewhat commendable though that he doesn't like bang her into domesticity like some of these movies like where there's a wild woman and then our our Mel Gibson roguish type bangs her into being a civilized woman like that at least there's that where she's like still at the end of the movie she's still 
just as much in the game and he's looking forward to keeping their relationship going through the game because that's how it's like rivals who fuck yes and, and that's the charming part of it that i think saves it is that the idea of their relationship can't calm down and just become those two sharing a pot of money their relationship has to be those two chasing each other i mean if anything saves it i would definitely say it's jody foster is awesome in this movie she is funny she is so good at um, playing both the the kind of um, housewife that just lucked into poker that is throwing off all of these people that have these attitudes toward her. Um, she's like – and then can kind of take advantage of like her aggressive feminine – fem in her aggressive femininity. Jesus. Fem – her aggressive uh, – Femininity. Femininity. Um, that's going to be fun for you to cut together. Maybe you just say all of it. Um, I also am really bad at saying sea anemone. So I did that. The other, I was trying to make a joke about, uh, someone's uh, about what is the natural enemy of a sea anemone? And then I couldn't fucking, yeah, it just mumbled out of my mouth. Yeah. I could say aggressive feminism, but that's not really what I mean. I do mean aggressive femininity. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she, she's really good. She's very charming. Um, the two things that kind of walked away, Scott, I'm going to say three things that I that I really still love about this movie are Jodie Foster. I love uh, The Last Half Hour, which is uh, all the different twists still get me. I, I like con man movies. I like that um, nothing is uh, definitive and it still leaves it open ended. We can talk more about that. And then maybe it might be good to transition to some area of like uh, depiction that is pretty woke for not even just 1994, but I would say 2018, uh, which is uh, Graham Greene and the uh, the Native Americans, the indigenous people and how they're portrayed in this movie. And then not only are they portrayed as very well, um, it's also constantly shitting on all of the terrible attitudes towards uh, indigenous people and Native Americans. The movie um, gets to make jokes at the expense of Native stereotypes because it brings so much Native agency into the movie. And yeah. It makes it a whole like subplot for, I don't know, 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Um, and it is fun to see uh, newer Westerns have to walk around uh, the Cowboys versus Indians thing. Um, I Someday I do want to do uh, Bone Tomahawk on the show because it does something very interesting. Uh, it does something that Firefly does and Ghosts of Mars do, which is um, it wants to have the Cowboys and Indians thing, but it can't. So it makes an alien race or something that's just completely different than, you know, an actual Native American uh, so that they can still have the Cowboys versus Indians dynamic. So at worst, it's not really good because then it kind of protects itself from racism. At worst, it's like colonialist because it's still projecting this idea that there's like natives, there's these savages that you need to like, you know, subjugate. Um, But like, this is interesting because this is like a more comedic take. This is a calmer take. This isn't like... um, This isn't totally taking the barbs out of what white men did to Native Americans. Um, No, no, it's it's taking it's actually it's taking them very seriously. So to set it to set it up a little, if you have never seen this movie, essentially what happens is um, there they right after Mel Gibson helps this like um, stagecoach 
family that's going to start a mission in a church. Um, they were under the impression that uh, Native Americans had come in, stole their horses, and Mel Gibson ends up finding it's just some horse robbers that dressed up as Native Americans. And so everyone's like, well, why did we hear those war drums earlier? And then all of a sudden, Graham Green leading a uh, party of, of Native Americans shows up. And Mel Gibson's the only one that uh, can speak the language. He was trying to find Graham Greene anyways because he owed him money. So he makes a big show out of pretend I'm sacrificing myself. So they're they're laughing and joking. And while, of course, ever, all of the all the white people are freaking out that uh, they're whooping and hollering and that Mel Gibson's going to go sacrifice himself to their to their ritual. You kind of get that something's up, but they're still kind of all, you know, dressed in kind of that stereotypical 50s, 40s Western garb. And then there's a point where Mel Gibson kind of takes the air out of what's going on, that we're we're still seeing some very race, racist and cartoonish depictions. He's like, what what are you guys even doing? I hear the war. Why, why are there war drums banging and stuff like that? What are you what are you guys doing? And Graham Greene explains that there's a Russian oligarch who wants to see the old West and has these shitty opinions. And, and basically they say that like, yeah, he thinks all these dumb things about how and hey, white man. And so, yeah, we're ripping him off to um, to give him what he wants. And then there's, you know, there's a lot of discussions of that. And the whole time Graham Greene's take is you guys are so fucking Stupid, and then the other part that happens is when uh, when Mel Gibson gets uh, gets rescued from uh, the Native Americans, or anytime anyone talks about them, they make all these jokes about killing them and how they're savages and stuff like that. And each time Mel Gibson reacts very aggressively, with kind of pointing out how they are just people like everyone else, and that their comments are shitty and dehumanizing a very surprising depiction all the way around. Like it didn't just stop with its joke about the native Americans leaning into stereotypes in order to make money. It kind of has a few other things to say about how shitty everyone else views them and how backwards uh, their thoughts were. So that's, you know, it's pretty welcome, but then it also allows Graham Greene and everyone there to be funny and, and to just not have to be like some sort of wise sages, but be just a part of the fun is everybody else. Because the one thing this movie basically posits is that everyone is a liar and a cheat and a con person. That's kind of the whole gist of the movie. It's not just Mel Gibson, literally everyone he meets is pulling some sort of con on someone else. And it's it's refreshing that they let you know the native americans have have in on the fun they are not like accepted they don't serve a different role they're just another group that is like part of the 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 fun of this movie i think yeah i think i think it really works uh, as a comedic thing because it kind of takes the um, punching down aspect out of, of it out because yeah. this is Mel Gibson dealing with a, a, a peer. Uh, a, also, apparently everybody that he hangs out with is a liar and a con man on some level. Well, but essentially everyone in the movie, though, right? Yeah, the bank manager, anybody smart enough to be a con man is one. The bank manager was also lying to him about not having enough money. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, the scene um, is almost there. You're right. I think that the the him coming back and being like... Uh, pointing out all the why all these racist comments are racist and that you know also earlier in the movie uh, a bunch of people blame uh, a robbery on uh, Indians uh, and he says like 
okay, I'll go check it out. And, of course, it's white people with, like, feathers in their cap and shit, like, who painted their own horses. And, like, he knows immediately they're not Indians because of the, I think, the way they they didn't, they shooed their horses. Yeah. And so the movie has a lot of stuff like that that's kind of leaning into putting natives into this place where they've been so stepped on by white men at this point and they're assuming we know that history well enough to just say okay but this is like how this particular group is reacting to being subjugated they're basically making a con out of their rate the racism that white people refuse to relieve them of yeah um he's they're like they're like we'll make money off these these white people's dumb bullshit because no matter what they're gonna they have to believe the dumb bullshit the yeah. genocide of our race depends on their dumb bullshit yeah. uh there's a great line when they enter into this like one of my favorite western like like just beautiful valleys encircled yeah. on all sides by mountains green running hills tri- streams evergreen trees all just beautiful western location total sucker for that stuff and then um Mel says, wow, you, you pick them good. And then um, Graham Greene says, uh, maybe we should have chosen Swampland. Uh, maybe he'll leave us alone. <laughs> yeah. There, and there's a, there's a lot of that, though. There's a lot of, like, even even these two who have a clear friendship, like, j- just like all friendships that are predicated on, like, one race wiping out another race, like, that, that friendship is not without its, like, uh, rough edges and... Uh, and kind of scraping against each other. Yeah. I think, you know, Mel Gibson can't just be like, oh, this is a nice place you got. Because Mel Gibson at that moment represents all white men. And white men kind of decided what what places they had access to. So even though Mel Gibson didn't, you know, specifically do it, he is still, of course, benefiting from it. Yeah, um, it, it, it all the fun parts of the movie are the cons, the the, the give and take. Like, uh, the, just to kind of park here for a second, um, what do you think of con movies? Like The Sting, Ocean's Eleven, Con Air, the Met movies, Con Air, Edward Burns' Confidence, Conway Twitty. Oh, great movie, <laughs> James Con. Oh, he's Wrath of Con. Wrath of Con's a good one. Um, yeah, convection ovens. Con me by your name. Yeah, good one. Cinecon. That's a bad one. Um, <laughs> I didn't even get that cin- one. Yeah, here, let's park here. Please explain your joke to me. Cin- Cinnabon. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you think about conman movies? I, I, I generally, I'm generally pretty much into them. Oh, I love them. I I love a movie that is basically trying to be smarter than me. Like the whole. Uh, the, the fun of con movies is that they are constantly daring the audience to figure this out. And the good ones, anyway, usually stay so far ahead of the audience that um, you can't figure it out. So that's a fun dichotomy to to it's one of the few movies that is basically like, well, a lot of twists are going to happen. So let's see if you can stay on top of this. And you as a film goer. I'm not I, I I'm not a try to guess the twist person, but it's in in general when it comes to movies. But con movies, it, it's you're almost supposed to. They're like it's it's a magic trick movie. It's watch my hand over here. I'm going to be doing some stuff behind my back. 
Yes, um, I agree. I'm, I'm generally really into them. Um, I really like uh, one of my favorite movies of the last year was um, Lu- uh, L- Lucky Logan. That is a movie about a, it's very similar to Ocean's Eleven. It's about a bank job. So it's like about uh, people pulling, uh, you know, uh, sleight of hand tricks over and over again, layering all these different modes of obfix- obfuscate. God damn it. Turning into Aaron. Obfuscation. (laughs) Fuck you. I can Um, say obfuscation all day. (laughs) Uh, Layering all these modes of obfuscation over one another to um, conceal to their their enemy what they're doing. Maybe like, you know, show a little bit like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm coming to rob you. And then like when the person is looking one way, they misdirect the other way. Um, this movie uh, does, I, not to walk back too much of what I said earlier, Mel Gibson is a monster. Um, this movie does kind of protect him a little bit in the sense that con movies, and this is what this movie is through and through. It's actually one of the strengths and uh, problems with this movie, I think, and we'll get to that later, uh, is that uh, con men are dicks. So, like, letting these con men kind of, like, chip away at each other the whole time is, like, part of the fun. So that does kind of ground like the scenes where Mel Gibson is screwing over somebody or somebody is screwing over Mel Gibson, but you still like both characters in that interaction. Because uh, the tone of this movie is like, everybody's just having fun. Mel Gibson's just trying to go to a, a poker game. He's not trying to like get enough money for his wife's leukemia treatment, right? Like he's just trying to- I'm, I'm not going like, to lie to you, Peter. I got a dream. Different movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, then, yeah, then everyone becomes a monster, like the bank teller, Graham Greene. Like, are you serious? You're not going to give the guy the money you owe him for his wife's leukemia treatment? Although, I mean, it is like, you know, 18 something. Yeah. Just, it's just leashes, right? <laughs> We're going to bring in special European leeches, uh, the finest in class, uh, organic leeches, uh, not any of those factory farm leeches. Well, well, and this isn't just a con movie, though, although that adds to it. So taking aside the Mel Gibson thing, this movie has something um, – paints its protagonist in a light that I love when movies do it, which is basically the unbeatable person that might as well have magic powers, like – And they set that up very well in that scene I described at the beginning. He isn't just amazing at poker and can beat anyone. There's never a point in this movie where you feel like he's going to lose, and that works with the tone. The the strife is getting him to the poker game, but once he's at that poker team, he's going to win every time because he might as well be, you know, Jesus fucking Christ at poker. Um and uh but then he's gonna like he's also the fastest draw in the West. He you keep you keep finding these like skills that he has, and while he gets into scrapes, he is almost like a superhuman person, a superhero, in his ability to get out of everything that's going on by using some new trick he learned. Like, oh, we didn't know he speaks the language of the of Native Americans. We didn't know that he, you know, was an expert at this or that. And I love movies where the protagonist is essentially perfect. Um, yeah. Like, sometimes you don't need your protagonist to have a flaw. You can just put this guy who is good at everything into these situations that he keeps having to get out of. That's that's the Indiana Jones model, right? The James Bond model. Like, James Bond knows everything about anything. He's, you know, the best spy. He, he, he like, you give him a plane, a tank, a sub. 
He can fly all that shit. He can hack like you know Indiana Jones too. He's he's the best shot. He's good with a whip. He is a smart son of a bitch. He can mostly fly everything. And and then you just put him in these like escalating set pieces that he needs to get out of and that's fun. That is a fun way to make a movie and movies are too concerned I think in general about uh, characterization which means you have to give these people some flaw so that their like triumph in the plot of the movie mirrors some sort of like personal triumph and I gotta tell you it's not that there's not good movies that do that but if I'm gonna put that up against like no personal flaws uh, and just uh, situational issues I'm always gonna go for that one yeah, I think as long as there's something to sort of um, hang the movie around, some sort of structure that makes those individual little encounters compelling, um, I agree. Though, um, I think one of my problems with this movie is it's two hours, seven minutes, which, you know, does go by fairly fast. It hangs in the middle. But at the end, there's a series of cons that go back and forth, just like an endless series of cons. And... I think that because of the length of the movie, uh, the ending just ending with, eh, there's going to be, you know, this is going to go on. This this sort of Sisyphusian back conning back and forth is just going to keep going on forever until one of them dies or they find a new, they might continue if they find someone else to throw in their little like weird love triangle. Oh, so these cons can just keep going on forever why is the movie this length then? Yeah, I think you cut out a little bit from the middle and you have less problems because once yes. they get to the boat, I feel like the next half hour is all gold, but it definitely feels a little fat. Like, I think the whole hanging scene, uh, both as a framing device, which makes no sense because the framing device is ends with like 45 minutes to go. Um, and, the, and, the, and there was barely a frame. Like, it's not a frame. Like, you can't put a picture in that frame. You just like drew an <laughs> outline on the wall over a picture that's already hanging there. It really, yes. there's no reason for it. But he gets out of that scrape that we see him in at the beginning in what? 10, like there's nothing special. It's like 10 seconds later and he just like makes the horse go. And then the tree falls. And then that's it. That's how he got out of that one. Very anticlimactic. Like, we said something about Bram Stoker's Dracula in that episode, like how the ending feels anticlimactic. Do you remember that a they, month ago, people? <laughs> there's a, there's a, this is, this is very anticlimactic. They spend the whole movie setting that up, and you expect us to come back around and having had one character that he made a connection with save him, he just kind of gets out of it. Yeah. Without any, he doesn't really do anything either. Like, it's not like he's like an American ninja warrior and he like climbs on top of a thing to crack a thing to get himself out. It's just, it's just done. Well, and you're just, yeah, you're just supposed to, it's just supposed to add a little bit of tension between he, him and uh, Alfred Molina. But he, it could have already been a situation where he screwed over Alfred Molina at the beginning and Alfred Molina hates him and wants to kill him. Like, why, there's the failed attempt on his life adds literally nothing. So speaking of con men movies, particularly one of the, one of my favorite ones ever is The Prestige. The Prestige is basically movie as magic trick where you get to be not only an audience to a movie, but you get to be audience to a trick. And the fun thing about The Prestige is it mixes what it lets you in on with what it is going to keep secret from you so that you can have some stuff just be revealed as a big surprise. And some stuff you could figure out on your own, A, or B, it'll just tell you 
so you get to be one of the con men for a little bit, right? Like yeah. You get to be, you get to be along with like all oh, these these schmucks are gonna, you know, they're gonna eat this up, and then like a few minutes later, you get to be the schmuck. And that's the other genius about good con movies, which that is, it has some stuff in the movie that's gonna be hard for you to figure out. It has some stuff in the movie that that's going to be easy for you to figure out, but it makes you think that you were smart enough to figure it out, and then it's gonna leave stuff that you could never figure out. But it doesn't feel like a cheat because you're in this world where there's all these different levels of twists anyways. So it doesn't feel like the movie's played straight and then like does a twist and you're like, fuck that. That makes no sense. It's just one of many. And that's a good con movie of which, of course, The Prestige is. And that's why it gets away with like Maverick. There's like you couldn't figure out half the stuff in and you're not even really supposed to. Uh, it's it's just that. um you don't feel like you were the rug was pulled from you because there is some other twist that you may have figured out, which is actually one I wanted to ask you, Peter. Did you did you figure out that uh, James Gardner was going to be his dad? Um, no, because uh, I thought the trick was just that James Gardner was going to turn on them at some point because James Gardner had shown himself to be a little bit of a trickster earlier on. Yeah. And I thought they were going to be like, oh. His con is a very dumb con. His con is basically like, I made you all give away your guns, and now I'm going to steal the money. So that's a great example then, because... I thought it was just going to be a dumb con, and then Mel Gibson has to come in and be like, this is what a real con looks like, get the money back from James Garner. So that's a great example of what I was talking about, that it it clued you in enough that you figured out one of them, so you were ahead of the movie, but then there's this other twist that... Um, you may not have been able to get because you were focused on having figured out the first twist. Um, and also, it is funny, though, rewatching this movie. Uh, it is so clear that that James Gardner is supposed to be Mel Gibson's dad. Anytime he talks about his dad, um, it goes to James Gardner. He gives him a look. When they first see each other, they're like, hey. Like, there is an intensity in the way they look. There are all these little subtle clues. It's sort of like Fight Club. Uh, not really, but it is when you saw, when you rewatched Fight Club, it's so, it doesn't feel so obvious that they're the same person spoilers for Fight Club because they do so much to like, let you know and phrase things in certain way to the point that I remember showing people Fight Club, uh, having been like blown away by the twist when I was a sophomore in high school, uh, and being like, oh shit. They're going to figure this. The people I'm showing to are going to figure this out because it is like it's like they have an air horn and they're letting you know that these are the same people in the movie. Uh, it's not to that level in Maverick, but it felt the same way watching it. It's like, oh, my God, how could you not know that they're the that they're <laughs> father and son? But it's because it's it's one of those great twists that it's all there on screen, but there's not enough of it to make your mind connect the dots. But then the, the, you know, it's the magic eye thing. Once you see the, that's a lot of metaphors, but once you know what the picture is, it's easy to see it again. I am wondering what is the difference between a movie like usual suspects, which has a almost notorious rewatch problem. Everyone's like, well, yeah, I don't feel like rewatching the movie. That sounds fucking exhausting the second time. And then you rewatch it and you're like, okay, so I'm now I'm just watching Kevin Spacey lie to me the whole movie. Like, yeah, ignore, all the Kevin Spacey shit. Just pretend like this was three months ago. Um, well, I, yeah. <laughs> um, but but the point is the point is that this is something people have been saying a long time, and um, and 
the the I'm wondering what is the difference between a con movie like The Sting or Fight Club where it's kind of fun to rewatch and be like in on the game in on the joke and what is the difference between a movie like Usual Suspects where like the idea of rewatching it sounds exhausting to me. Well, I, I feel the same way about The Sixth Sense. Like for some reason, I think The Sixth Sense doesn't hold up for me on on uh, subsequent watches because that that movie is almost wholly dependent on where it gets to at the end. And people would probably disagree with me on that. It's this great creepy ghost story. But I kind of feel like it's slow and plodding and then eventually gets there with with kind of a bang. And then you leave the theater going, how did they do that? Um, And then watching it, though, a lot of the errors is out of the balloon. I think Fight Club, there's so much funny stuff going on. There's a lot of good, you know, actors. There's exciting scenes that and there's enough subtle hints to it that you 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 get to watch the movie with a fresh perspective on what's going on. But the movie itself is still really exciting to watch. And sometimes even that second viewing is really exciting. Uh, and I think the same thing with Maverick. Like this movie isn't isn't you could say someone that that ends up being. Uh, you know, Mel Gibson's dad, and it wouldn't ruin the movie. You just would know one of the one of the many twists and stuff like that. I think something like The Usual Suspect, there's nothing to figure out because when you're rewatching it, you're like, oh, just none of this happened. This is all just a lie. So there's there's nothing new to grab you on a second viewing except knowing that. And I don't think there's anything incredibly exciting happening on scene, even in the lies, to draw you in. So that's that's the problem. I think I think you do need to have well, you need to have a good movie that stands without the twist that that draws people in. Um, and then you need the twist to not redefine the movie into stupidity. Yeah, I agree. That's pretty good. I think that's a pretty good quick and dirty thesis, because there's a, there's a question like what movie does it make you feel stupid rewatching like and some movies you're like. Like, for, for instance, uh, High Tension has a twist at the end that if you literally change just that twist, High Tension would be one of my favorite movies. So now when I try and rewatch the movie, I'm just, like, getting angry, anticipating the twist. Yeah. Uh, it's the same thing with I re- tried to rewatch The Village, and I was just like, man, there's a really cool movie in here. Oh, you shit the bed. You shit the bed. Well, and The, and the Village is a great example of pulling uh, the worst con because I realized what was happening – about 10 minutes before the end. And I was like, and then I'm, it was such a stupid thought I had that I was like, there's no fucking way they're doing this. And as an inch closer and she like leaves the compound or whatever, I was like, oh my God, they're fucking doing this stupid, stupid twist. And then they do the twist. So not only was the audience well ahead of it, it was such a bad twist that the audience is like hoping, I think that, um, that oh, please say he's smarter than this dumb thought I just had. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and the twist at the end of this movie is fun because it doesn't make you feel like a dummy. It doesn't castigate you the way some twists do. Like you should have put the pieces together sooner, dummy. Or just like Chaz Palminteri. Like this, this end of this movie is like you want to come back and see what these guys are up to, right? Yeah, and it, it, it's you know it has a lot of fun moments and it's. Uh, has a lot of action-packed scenes. It's got good vistas of the Old West. And it doesn't hinge on one twist. It hinges on a bunch. So if one doesn't work for you, good, great news. That train's coming, coming back in the station in two minutes at the end. So it's 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 piling enough on 
on the ending that that's in, in some ways that's the twist is that it's just a stack of twists that you cannot you don't need to get bogged down by everyone like that's the fun it's like i'm going to tell you 10 new things in the last 10 minutes and uh and let's see how that works for you i i've said before that i'm a richard donner fan and i think that that's something that people uh question because he seems like such a work for hire director because but he just made so many good movies i don't think people question i think has someone once questioned it because i feel like you've built up something in your head yeah, I've seen people call him a hack a lot. Oh, really? That he was, yes, and say that like he made Superman and like especially every single one of his movies uh, his is like to me bona fide classics has been challenged except for Superman one. The Omen has lost a lot. Oh, Omen's of its, great. The Omen has lost a lot of its its um, uh, you know coolness appeal to people in recent years because it all got sucked into Rosemary's Baby. I love The Omen, but also I grew up with. Loving the Omen years before I saw Rosemary's Baby. I saw them in the correct order, which is you see Omen when you're younger, because it's a lot of like just crazy shit happening. And then you see Rosemary's Baby when you're older and you have more of a sense of like how invasive it would be to have all these people surrounding you. Slower too. Yeah, it's true. You can't really see Rosemary's Baby until you've like at least lived in an apartment or at least had like a longer relationship. Yeah. Or something. You need to have some... I saw it in college, and I think I saw Omen in, in high school. Omen is relatable as shit. It's an evil little kid and all these random awesome murders. Like, anybody could watch that and have a good time. I guess I'm just kind of surprised because, I mean, when it comes to Richard Donner, like, discussing as, like, a director, I feel like most of the talk about him as a director is about, like, defending how much of a better version we would have gotten of Superman 2 if he would have directed. So when I hear people talk about Richard Donner, which isn't often, even though he has made a lot of movies that are meaningful for a lot of people and a lot of you know, just kind of uh, classics that people watch a lot is He's usually that a lot of pop culture touchstones. Yeah, so it, it does. It, it feels like when people then talk about Donner, it's always about like, oh, finally we get the you know Superman two Donner cut, which was a big deal like twelve years ago, and and stuff like that. So if anything, it feels like people defend him over studio meddling, and then of course so many of his movies are beloved. I just I I I've never run across the 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 hack accusations yeah i think it's also i think if i were to pinpoint it it's that people accuse him of having no style which i disagree with i think that it's not as it's not as defined as robert altman but i think that just like robert altman i think he could be defined by having a certain flow to his dialogue there's every single one of his movie has is sort of built as these sort of like comedic give and takes between characters that's why he made a bunch of good buddy cop movies because he's very good at the um watching two people square off in a way that doesn't make you hate either of them uh and even like there's a there's there's scenes in superman some of the best scenes in the original superman are clark kent and lois lane sort of like figuring out each other that's the best stuff i think for me in, in the original superman is is like is like lois lane like asking superman funny questions and and clark kent trying to give him or superman trying to give her you know a, a, a diplomatic answer or clark kent giving her a diplomatic answer and i think some of the he doesn't have much of a style is because he essentially directed to first movies like 
he he directed or two template movies like superman was the first superhero movie so like every other superhero movie was essentially looking at that and then lethal weapon was essentially the first buddy cop movie as we talked about and even though that was shane black's script it was still his director so i think sometimes when you're a director who makes these kind of templates that everyone follows it almost seems like you have no style because everyone else copies you to the point that you it's like it's like looking at like a microsoft word template a blank page and going there's nothing on here but it's like, well, yeah, sure, you don't see anything on that page, but you know all the programmers that had to uh, create that blank page so that everyone could write on it going forward? It is a little of that. So you, it, I think I think that's part of the problem with him is that he just – he made these first movies, first type of movies. Yeah. And then, and then people took from it. So it's like when you look at it now, you don't see Richard Donner essentially creating the modern superhero blockbuster movie you just see like oh this is this is what superman uh this is what a superhero movie looks like yeah and like even movies of richard donner's that i hate like the goonies um he's made a lot of shit though i just went looked at his filmography like 16 blocks and 16 16 blocks is like an is like a pretty good movie to have your be your last movie most directors make a piece of shit before they die have you seen Uh, assassins He's he's not dead assassins is very bad so bad I didn't know he made the toy, which, which is uh, a movie that has not aged well, but it is probably the funniest Richard Pryor movie. Um, Most Richard Pryor movies are bad. Richard I Pryor like is just Mi- fucking funny. I don't know Brewster's Millions. I don't think that's a good movie. I think he's. Funny I think he's very in funny it. in it. Mm-hmm. He's good in what's uh, Stir Crazy too. Stir Crazy is a terrible movie, but like, it makes me feel like it's a it's a small tragedy that like having. Um, those two together, yeah. Having them. Both I haven't together. seen See No Evil, Hear No Evil. Yeah, that movie's also terrible. Uh, Richard Pryor was 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 a was a stand up legend, and I think every one of his movies that I've seen, I would consider a not great movie that he like almost saves. Um, I'm gonna go with Brewster Millions being good. I'm not gonna rewatch it. Don't at me. I'm also never rewatching the toy. That sounds not fun. No, that uh, sounds terrible. <laughs> anyways, um, he's made some terrible movies, but even The Goonies, and uh, which is uh, you know a movie that a lot of people have turned on in recent years, it's still like a cult movie. The Goonies is a template movie. Uh, yeah. These these I do not think we would have str- as much as as much as uh, you know Stand by Me is a better movie on every level. Um, the new It movie is a better movie on every level. Um, Goonies helped create the Stranger Things template that um, other works would sort of jump onto. Yeah, that that movie is is establishing something, even if it's not one I personally enjoy. Yeah, and The Omen created a whole subgenre of evil kid movies. Uh, there were evil kids movies before then, but it's just like there were technically buddy cop movies oh. before Lethal Weapon. He codified what this little subgenre was. And let's be clear, there were evil kids, too. Oh, there yeah. There still are. He did not. If you're thinking Richard Donner invented evil kids, he didn't. He just made a movie about one who happened to be Satan. So we're we're going to be wrapping this episode up really quickly. I, I'm going to just kind of rapid fire uh, through some stuff that I really like in this movie um, that we're not going to have time to talk to uh, at length. But uh, – James Coburn, who doesn't show up till the riverboat because he's the owner of the riverboat and the tournament and the tournament. 
is so so great. Uh, James Coburn's always really great, especially when he gets to play kind of uh, funny and like like he's very good in Payback, which is actually a movie I kind of as we were doing Maverick, I kind of regretted that we had I hadn't chose that one instead because I haven't seen that in a long time and that was like one of my favorite movies in high school. Maybe someday, um, although we may need to space out these Mel Gibson movies. But uh, James Coburn also has uh, one of my favorite lines in the movie, and there are a lot of good lines. But when he is um, announcing to uh, James Gardner that he's double-crossing him when he's just like, I don't know why I'm doing this. Uh, Maybe my greedy nature, which is a very funny line, especially when delivered by James Coburn. Oh yeah, he's he's an expert at giving delivering uh, sort of lovable bastard dialogue. Yeah, casually um, evil. Yeah, have you ever seen uh, Duck You Sucker or Once Upon oh, yeah. a Time a Revolution? Yep, love oh. it. He, he's I mean he's mostly a good guy in that movie, but like he delivers some some badass lines in that movie where you're like, why was he not in 100 movies like this? Why why did we have so many uh, Get Flint movies or whatever that movie is? <laughs> yeah. The must must find Flint, must love Flint. I think it's uh, in like Flint. I think you're confusing. I think you're confusing. Must love dogs. A movie. Yeah. A movie from 2005 with John Cusack and uh, in like Flint, uh, the 60s spy movie. Let's just agree to disagree. Um, but yeah, he's he's lovely in the movie. Um, so okay, so <laughs> we're speaking of the dialogue. Let's 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 start with Mel. I kind of in in after especially after the bram stoker's dracula episode we did uh i'm kind of happy that mel gibson just does his most modern american accent in this movie because the alternative could have been real bad like what's funny is foster's jody foster's fake accent in this is like not like unentertaining bad but it's like not good well but the movie uh acknowledges that because she is doing a fake accent which is why it circles around to being good because she is she's doing it so hard that a lot of other people like mel gibson other con men are like yeah that's not an accent you've never been there clearly um but you're really you're really laying into that uh uh southern southern uh southern lady yeah Bell. When he starts making fun of her accent, it's like a little too late in the movie because I'm like, I've been making fun of her accent for so long. It's like the first 20 minutes. I'm tainted by the fact that um, uh, she has the absolute worst accent I've ever seen in a movie in Elysium. Like, I think Elysium's actually a pretty fun movie, but she is somehow the worst part of it, which is always a sad thing to say about Jodie yeah. Foster, yeah, a, a wonderful did, actress. I did not, uh, I did not see that one. Um, so I really, really want to quickly go through. Okay, so I think this movie is is uh, feels fake, like the accents. Yeah, um, it's sort of artificial. It, it it is not going for a a uh, you know traditional realistic western. You not know, not at all. Uh, John Ford sort of ma- like his movies always seemed like they were realistic western, but really they were just like sort of dignified westerns. Like there was no more realism in them than there was in this. Um, but it's uh, it's supposed to be this sort of like comedic, not quite farce, but like this sort of comedic like uh, uh, odyssey through it's, the West. Yeah, it's anachronistic. 
Yes, it's very, very anachronistic. It's and um, it's it's all this sort of like a historical pa- all of westerns, which I love westerns, are all this sort of like a historical pageantry of America trying to like idolize its own past. Sometimes I find like really earnest westerns that are like this is what the past was like, and there's like really awful Native American stereotypes and like really like dignified cowboys, and I'm like, well, no, that's not that's not what it was it was like at all. This this is a you are you looked at a bunch of pictures and a painted pictures in a book and then just ran with a bunch of stories that you were told by a colonialist past on how we conquered this country white people conquered this country so i kind of like that when when it leans into the artificiality of it yeah this is this is the west that you saw on old tv shows and they're just that's that's all they're trying to do is i mean richard donner we didn't get a chance to really talk about like why this movie exists, but Richard Donner essentially just wanted to make a fun Western with Mel Gibson because he thought that would be fun. And then kind of the the early 90s were such a, a big time to like um, reposition 60s television series as uh, as movies that he just basically grabbed uh, a title that he could like hang his goofy fun Western around. And a structure. But his entire goal in making this movie uh, was to make just a Western with Mel Gibson. That was fun. And that was it. And and that's what we got. And um, I think that's why it's like one of only two of, of all of those uh, 90s remakes, movie remakes of 60s television shows. Like there was two good ones. It was this, which basically had nothing to do with the show except James Gardner was there and his name was Maverick and he played poker. Um, and he was, you know, a smart guy who got out of trouble, but it's not like trying to remake any specific thing besides that. That's a lot of Westerns. It's, you know, it's a pretty generic premise. Uh, and you had the Brady Bunch, which was just setting a Brady Bunch um, movie in the 90s, but keeping them in the 70s. So it served as like a parody of the wholesome nature that they were like presenting yes. in the 70s. And that's like it. And there was. A well, and also Adam's family. Oh, yeah, Adam's Family. Adam's Family Values is the best of all of those movies, I would say, including this one. Uh, I'd say Brady Bunch is the best, but... Um, but yeah, so the the uh, the only thing I, I the only part that I have a problem with the artificiality of this movie uh, and the '90s sort of artificiality. The only problem I have with it is during the last act, they inexplicably start rolling out this like really terrible country modern country. Oh music. yeah, I fucking I, that's in my notes too. I fucking hate that. Yeah, th- that's the only thing that really bugs me is I'm like, listen, I get it, but like, can we also not encourage like shitty pop country? Like, could you have at least not chosen like some like sad '60s country? Like, couldn't we have chosen something a little bit more? Yeah. Well, you know who you can thank for choosing that, right? Who? You know who did the score for this movie? I, he probably wasn't the music supervisor as well, but uh, Randy Newman. Randy. So Randy. I mean, I mean, it, what it what it should have been is like his first country draft of "You've Got a Friend in Me," which is already pretty country, but you know, just just add a banjo and you basically can give that a test ride before next year when you're doing the <laughs> Toy Story release. So uh, we we are out of time on this episode. Yes. I think instead of final thoughts, because I think um, I think you guys get a sense. Let's talk about. Uh, the elephant in the room very quickly, which is the uh, Danny. This I don't know. It's not the elephant in the room at all. Um, it was for moment. me for a little. It bit. was it for was you specifically. You about. Yeah, you specifically. It was the elephant in the room, which is there is a gag in this movie where uh, when the bank is being robbed, it is Danny Glover, and the movie <laughs> drops 
any uh, pretense to not be uh, a movie for a second and has Mel Gibson, I, Danny Glover, take down his uh, bandana that's covering his face and then those two just look at each other with a, what are you doing in this movie glance? And... Uh, and Did then you hear yeah, the music. Oh yeah, there was a they, it was repurposed Lethal Weapon theme, right? Yeah, but they don't use the saxophone because that's two eighties. They use like a violin or something. Yeah, and, and then as yeah. as he walks out, he says, uh, "He Danny Glover says he's getting too old for this shit," which is like one of six s bombs in this movie, which is so funny for PG. Why why wasn't this movie rated PG thirteen? It's not. It's ninety four. It's not like it's so close to the. The, the, the creation of PG-13 that they're like, I don't know what anything should be anymore now that we added this new rating. <laughs> Maverick was a show from 1957. Yeah. There was a little reboot in the 80s, but like, are you telling me that reboot wasn't nostalgia mining? Like, the show, this movie yeah. is for older people. Yeah, it is it's not biz- for... <laughs> it's bizarre that it got a P... Yeah, but I think everyone would have been fine with PG-13. I'm sure everyone was super confused when it got rated PG. We were like, all right, whatever. Sure. Anyway, so yeah, so that... I, I think that gag in a vacuum is funny. It just doesn't work for me because it's in the first 20 minutes of the movie. Like, they should have saved that for one of the twists at the end or on the ship. And I think then it earns it a little more instead of just, like, throwing it in your face almost immediately. Where it's like, well, wait. Uh, yeah. What the fuck's going on? Why is Glover here? The movie is not a step. The movie is not even done with its first act. The movie doesn't really have acts. But it's not even done with its first section of establishing who these characters are what the movie is going to be. Uh, he's still in, like, he's, uh, Maverick is still in town. Like, he's still in the original town he started. Like, he hasn't set yeah. off on this journey where the journey sort of helps uh, establish, like, it's, uh, you know, it's James Garner, it's Jodie Foster, it's Mel Gibson. They're all kind of angling each other. And then it's just Jodie Foster and Mel Gibson, but also James Garner is going to show up later. It, that's fine. For me, the the problem that bothered me is because I'm such a huge fan of Lethal Weapon, and I imagine a lot of people were, especially people that were seeing a movie called Maverick that was a Richard Donner, Mel Gibson movie, even if people didn't know who Richard Donner was, like, it was the same uh, as Warner Brothers again, so it's the same marketing to the same group of people. All of a sudden, I'm like, hey, but, like, can Danny Glover stick around and, like, be his buddy for the rest of the movie? <laughs> Yeah, like it's it's the village problem. I, I mentioned the village, uh, you know, about something else earlier. It's the village problem where some part of my brain is like, but the, but the movie that you're you just you just sort of set up. It sounds really really great. Can we have can we have Danny we have, Glover in here? Yeah, yeah. Can Danny Glover play his dad? Um, <laughs> they're already throwing out a lot of conventions. Uh, yeah, so this movie was a mixed bag for me upon rewatch. It's a lot of fun. I think I'd still uh, recommend this to people if it wasn't for Mel Gibson. As such, it's like a it's a very sl- it's a it's a kind of like a eh, it's a shrug recommend. Like yeah, it's some good stuff in here, but there's it's a little over long, and you you got to deal with uh, Mel Gibson as a sexual ladies charming man, which is a little tough to take. But ho- but there is a lot of good stuff. You know, it's a good lazy Saturday movie, I think. Uh, be hungover, yeah. ideally. Be in the Mel Gibson <laughs> mindset when you watch it. <laughs> well, not too far into the mindset. Yeah, d- huh, yeah, don't go too far. Just, Just you, the- you never go full Mel Gibson. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've said before that the show The New Girl, it, this is unfair to the show, the show New Girl is designed for hangovers. 
Um, and I, I feel like there's like a whole class of movies that are like, they have this sort of like easygoing appeal. If you happen to tune out and take a nap for 20 minutes, like you're probably fine. Maverick is still Maverick. You pretty much just have to watch the first 30 minutes and you will figure out he's trying to get to a poker game. He's trying to get the money. And if he doesn't get the money, then he can't go to the poker game. So then the third act gets the poker game. And if you fell asleep the whole time, you'd be like, well, I guess he got the money. Let's watch the rest of this movie. So, yeah, I think that's a it's it's in no way a rousing endorsement. Uh, I'm glad I watched it still because uh, it, it's interesting to see Richard Donner have to repurpose a star that he helped make a star once again. Yeah, I you know what? I have nothing better to say than Maverick, New Girl. Basically the same thing. Uh, we'll wrap it up next week with Ghostbusters 2. Good night. <laughs> mother, oh dear mother, I'll tell you if I can. If you ever see me coming back, I'll be with a gambling man. I'll be with a gambling man. Be with a gambling man. Hey folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch, or... Our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.